We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the portion read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20. And you may recall that the last occasion when we were in the book of the Revelation, we were in this chapter 20, where we have these different references to a thousand years, Satan bound for a thousand years, the souls of those that were beheaded for Christ, reigning with him for a thousand years, and then the uh, dead uh, living not for that period of a thousand years, Satan then released for a little period after a thousand years. And uh, while this is the only reference in the word of God to this period of a thousand years or defined in that particular way, it has been the cause of much debate down through the centuries amongst the biblical scholars and students disagreeing as to when the thousand years that are referred to here really were to be identified in history and uh, the actual length of the period. These have been points of debate down through the centuries and changes have taken place in the church generally, its views, its understanding. And you see this right from the apostolic times right through to this day that we live in. And I was uh, looking through the historical records as to the church's view at different times or those who represented the thinking of the church at different times what the position was. And it is something... Uh, generally speaking like this, in the early church, the very early church, many of the early fathers, if you read their works, they were expecting the personal return of the Savior, even some of them during their lifetime. They misunderstood the words of the Savior and they actually expected the Lord to return at an early stage. Then in the Middle Ages, uh, primarily because of the scholarly teaching and the influence of Augustine, the church at that time was pretty well a millennial. They did not believe in a thousand-year reign as such limited to a thousand Years, the reign of Christ for a thousand years. And uh, many of them did believe at that time that history was broken up into uh, millenniums, periods of a thousand years, and that seven being the number of perfection, the world would last for 7,000 years, and the millennium was the closing thousand years of Christ's reign in the earth. Then the Reformation came 
And many of the reformers, of course, influenced much by John Calvin, they modified the views or the interpretation of Augustine somewhat. They still held his views generally, but they modified them to some degree. And then in the 17th century, because of the great awakenings that took place, great times of awakening and revival, then many began to develop post-millennial views, believing because of what they were seeing that this was evidence of the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies of a great reviving of religion and the building up of the Lord's cause. Then, in the 18th century, post-millennialism had become pretty well established. And it is during that century in particular that you have the great missionary endeavors, missionaries going out all over the world with the gospel. This was because they believed they had the promises of God that there would be a great reviving of religion, the gospel would progress and prosper, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth. And they were convinced then that they had the Lord's approval and encouragement and support to go with the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. Then, in the 19th century, that was really, as it were, the noon of post-millennial thinking during that period. And there began to develop uh, amongst evangelicals the premillennial view. And uh, men began to look around at what was happening. They'd witnessed revivals and awakenings. They'd witnessed the great missionary efforts And yet they were witnessing the great spiritual decline. And then they began to think that the Lord is coming soon. And you had the great emphasis throughout the evangelical world on the second coming of the Lord, that he would come suddenly and they were expecting it. And then you have in the 20th century, sadly, a decline in interest in the millennium entirely. Men began to think it isn't a fundamental doctrine. We don't need to have a clear interpretation of this millennium or this period in order to be saved, in order to get to heaven. And then the interest began to decline. But then... In more recent times, there has been a reviving of interest uh, uh, through the writings of persons like W.J. Greer and uh, Ian Murray and so on, a reviving of interest in the Puritan hope, as they called it, the hope uh, for the church in the dark times in which We live. 
But one thing is very clear. The millennium fits in, as a millennium, as I said, it just means a thousand years. It fits in to the reign of Jesus Christ. It is part of his reign. No one, whatever they say, whatever they agree on or disagree on, they cannot disagree with that. Now this is part of the reign of the glorified Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And uh, you will see that throughout the scripture, until we come to this time uh, mentioned here, the teaching of the Savior and the teaching of the apostles, and of course it was based on the teaching or the prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament, was that Christ was going to come and set up a kingdom And through the setting up of that kingdom, all other kingdoms would be brought down. And that kingdom, Christ's kingdom, would be the great uh, kingdom uh, in which Christ would be acknowledged to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here in this chapter 20, we have references to this period, but in the context of divine judgment. And you will see that uh, John mentions here in this chapter four particular events that he was uh, brought to see in vision. First of all, he says in verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven. And uh, as we said, we believe, and that is the general view of the Reformers and the Puritans and so on, that this is none other than the one who possesses the keys of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shuts and no man opens and opens and no man shuts. And he led hold of the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. Now you will remember the teaching of the Savior. In one of his parables, he talks of the need to bind the strong man before he can destroy his, spoil his goods. And this is a reference to the binding power of the Savior binding Satan in order to destroy his goods. We are told the reason why the Savior came into this world. First John uh, chapter 3 and uh, John tells us that uh, Christ the Son of God came into this world in verse 8 of 1 John 3 for this purpose. For this purpose. Not for us to decide uh, why Christ comes <coughs> or why he sent. But for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy 
the works of the devil. That's why he was manifest, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, through uh, the book of the Revelation, we've been observing the works of the devil, his powerful works, his deceitful works, his mighty ability to deceive the nations. And he uses the beasts uh, to minister and to deceive and to lead the nations astray and to lead them into opposition to Christ and to his church. Now John is writing the very book of the Revelation. He is the one who authors these words. For this purpose Christ was manifested. Look at all the works of the devil. Look at the power he possesses. But why was Christ sent into the world? Why did he come? To destroy the devil and to destroy his works. To manifest his power against him. And this is what John sees. The mighty angel coming who has greater power than the dragon who has done so much damage throughout the world and has so deceived multitudes of men and he binds them and casts them into the bottomless pit. Why? Because he's going to spoil his goods. Then John sees another vision, verse For I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And he says, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Well, right away... We know then that this cannot be a literal thousand years because those who were beheaded for the gospel's sake and those who were martyred, they lived and reigned with Christ throughout this period. They are spiritually alive, although they have been martyred. They are, they are not annihilated. They have not gone out of existence. They are truly alive. They've been martyred. They've been killed for the faith. But they are alive and they are alive with Christ. Now John goes on to say the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead lived not again (coughs) until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. What is John talking about here? The first resurrection. He talks about two resurrections. And he says there are those who experience the first resurrection and the second resurrection. On the other hand, there are those who experience the second resurrection, but they do not have part in the first resurrection. Because one resurrection is spiritual And one resurrection is literal or physical uh, when men are raised out of their graves, as you see later in this chapter. 
Now we read verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Now you have an example of those who were partakers of the first resurrection when you go, for example, to the epistle to the Ephesians. And there in the second chapter, what does Paul say to these Ephesians? You hath he quickened who were dead. You have been resurrected spiritually. You weren't dead physically, but you were dead spiritually. But you have been quickened by divine power, and you have become partakers of the first resurrection, resurrected spiritually from spiritual deadness and death. Now then, John writes, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. The second death, two deaths, two resurrections. Now those who are resurrected and the first resurrection are resurrected from the first death. But those who are not resurrected from the first death, what is John Wright? <coughs> they have they that have no part in the first resurrection they remain spiritually dead. And they remain spiritually dead in this life and beyond the grave until the second resurrection. And then both those who have part in the first uh, resurrection and those who are without part in it, they are raised either to be glorified or to their eternal shame. Now, that is essentially what John is talking about. But then, throughout this chapter, he draws attention to these things because it is a chapter dwelling upon divine judgments. You will see throughout the book of the Revelation, the word judge, judgment, judged, is 14 times referred to throughout the whole book. And much is stressed regarding God's righteous judgments. And here in this chapter, we see uh, at the end of the chapter, the latter part of it, one of the most terrible scenes Uh, the most terrible scene in reality, that you and I are all to be involved in. We can go right through the book of the Revelation, and we can think to ourselves, well, that part of history doesn't really involve me. And that event, well, that has little impact upon me. But here is one event that none of us dare ignore. We dare not. Because John saw us there. This is what he writes. Verse 11. 
I saw a great white throne. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. This is the greatest assembly of the human race that shall ever take place. No assembly will ever, ever come near to it. You hear in the news occasionally references to protests in different countries against the government or against legislation or whatever, and there are disputes about whether it was half a million or a full million or whatever. And people are amazed when they see vast assemblies of people. No assembly throughout history will ever compare with this assembly. Every last human being that ever existed since Adam was created until the last of the sons of men will have drawn his final breath. Every last one. Millions and billions of the human race all assembled, gathered from the sea, gathered from the dust, gathered out of their graves. Now, isn't it interesting how people will scoff when they read something like this? Who ever heard of anything so ridiculous? I was reading an article recently of those who are able to do it, paying a sum, I think the sum is 50,000 pounds, to have their dead bodies preserved. In particular, whatever kind of formulated fluid it is and uh, the temperatures that are minus 200 and something to preserve these bodies. For what purpose? Because they think, and the scientists think, give us some more time, we're going to be able to bring these bodies back to life. And they're convinced they can do it. It's just a matter of time. Now, if scientists imagine that they can actually develop the skills and the power to do such a thing, and that is mighty questionable. But man wants to live again. There's something in him that he does not like the idea that he will live 70 years or 80 years or whatever, and then that's the end of it. <coughs> he just can't accept that. There's something in him that looks beyond this scene of time and this particular life. And he wants to live again. But he doesn't want God to bring him alive again. Now, if, if, it, is, if it is something that is 
acceptable, believable in the scientific world. How is it that men deny such a fact just because God states it, that he is going to resurrect every last human being? I've often (coughs) stood at funerals and at an open grave and tried to address the people around it to remind them this grave that is open today is going to be opened again. And it does not matter whether men have drowned at sea, whether they've been eaten and devoured as martyrs by lions. Makes no difference. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Now one thing is sure. We may not know about many other events in history. We may not be able to accurately place them within a precise period of time in human history. But there's one thing we cannot possibly refute or deny, that the day of judgment is set, and that when Christ has reigned and established his kingdom, And when that kingdom has ruled and Christ has been honored throughout the nations, then the judgment is set. He is going to judge. And he's going to judge you and he's going to judge me. That is clearly taught here. No one will ever read this chapter and that believes the Bible, and ever deny that time is to come. That time is set. We believe that it is after the reign of Christ on earth. Not before it, but after it. Now, you will find that amongst the premillennialists, They will dispute, you see, as to the nature of Christ's kingdom. They will speak of two thrones. And uh, presently, according to their teaching, Christ is not on his own throne, he's exalted, but he's on the Father's throne. He's sharing, if anything, the throne with his Father, but it's his Father's throne. And not until the second coming will he then occupy his own throne or the throne of David. Now, the Bible does not speak of two thrones occupied by the Savior, but one throne. All power, he said, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The same throne that rules heaven is the throne that rules earth. And all that power belongs to me. And I rule, and I reign, and I am king uh, of kings and lord of lords. And it is he that we have to finally do with. Now, as we said, this is a chapter... That deals with judgment. 
You see the devil being taken and he's cast into the lake of fire. And we might think to ourselves, well, he duly deserves it. And he is cast where the beast and the false prophet are. And these who have been accompanying one another in the deceiving of men and the ruin of society, they are now the occupants of eternal judgment and eternal wrath. But then when we come to the end of this chapter, we read these terrible words, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those who reject Christ, those whose names are not in the book of life, they are cast into this company. And they are cast into the lake of fire. And as we've stressed all along, the book is full of symbolic language. And therefore, we have to appreciate these are symbols to convey certain truths. And no one can read the symbols and not see that they are delivering to us a most fearful message. They are delivering to us most fearful warnings. But they are telling us what is going to happen. Now, people will try to relate what they refer to as the millennium or the better days or the golden age, whatever way they want to describe it, to this event. And they will argue sometimes This is the reformed view. Someone else says, no, this is the reformed view. Now, when you just think of it, 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all these thousands of years of the work of the Spirit of God, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In one chapter, we find an issue that men take, and as though it was the most important issue in Scripture, they debate, and they argue, and they even fight over it. Now, one of the great problems, and young people be warned, There is a vast difference between political thinking and spiritual thinking. Now, you might wonder, what is he really referring to? It is this. You will find people, and as soon as you engage in conversation with them, you discover this. They are greatly taken with matters like the millennium. 
they are greatly taken with matters such as the establishment principle. Why? Because the establishment principle is a principle that refers to establishment of religion by governments, by kings, and so on, protecting the church and the rights of the church. And people then, politically minded, can be taken up, and I've met them. You start to talk to them about the Savior, they veer off. Start talking about justification. It's not interesting. Start talking about the atonement. That's not what they want to talk about. But they've got a political mind that focuses in on an aspect of the reign of Christ that they basically don't understand. And then what they will do is this. They will come to some poor soul who says, well, I don't understand all these things. But what I am seeking to do is to follow Christ. What I'm concerned about is my personal relationship to God. My own soul salvation. That's what's important to me. I may not live to see all these events coming to pass. But I shall be in eternity and I shall have to answer to God. And my concern is my soul. And when you young people meet with people, And they want to engage you in arguments about the reform position and this and the reform position and that. If they're not ready and able and willing to engage in conversation around the Savior himself, then generally speaking, the conversation is a waste of time. But before coming to actually consider this great white throne and its judgment. I'm just going to leave with you two things that you can keep in mind. First of all, the position of the church to which we belong. People will come along and they will say, well, our church believes this, our church believes that, and so on. I don't know how many of you young people actually possess the church's catechism, but if you don't, you ought to. Its full title is A Catechism of the History and Principles of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Now that will authenticate what we believe. It doesn't go into a lot of detail, and that's understandable. Nevertheless, it makes something clear, and I just want to remind you of what it says. What is the official position of the church? Do you believe in the second coming of Christ? Answer, answer yes. The New Testament plainly teaches the doctrine of Christ's second coming when Christ shall raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. And that's what we have before us here 
in Revelation 20. Question 177. What are the different views held regarding the glory of Christ's kingdom on earth? Answer. There are three different views concerning Christ's second coming and glory of his kingdom on earth. One, premillennialists believe that after his second coming, Christ will reign physically on earth for a thousand years before the last judgment. Two, postmillennialists believe that for a prolonged period, Christ's gospel will prevail over the whole earth, and his spiritual kingdom shall, will be established in its gospel fullness before he returns to judge the world. Three, amillennialists do not believe that Christ's kingdom will thus prevail for a prolonged period over the whole earth before he returns to judge the world. So the church simply sets out the three positions. Question 178. Does the Bible promise a time when the kingdom of Christ will be established in all nations by the power of the gospel? Answer, yes. There is no cause in the world that has such a bright future promised as the church or kingdom of Christ. Now you will see that there are no details, there are no fine details referred to It is just simply stating the three positions, the three interpretations of Scripture, and then emphasizing that we believe in the prosperity of the gospel, the advancement of Christ's kingdom until the day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth. That's simply the position. I know that Amongst the office bearers in the church, there will be differences and are differences of opinions as to the finer details. But that's the general position of the church in simple uh, terms. Now, I said I would leave with you two things. On one occasion, many years ago, the Reverend, the late Reverend Donald McLean from Glasgow and I, we were in a second-hand bookshop in Belfast. And as we were looking through the books, I said, Mr. McLean, he was a tutor, as you would know, for several years, tutoring the students and so on. So I said to him, tell me, what in your opinion is the best book that you could read on the millennium? And he said to me, Christ's second coming by Dr. David Brown. He was a minister in St. James's in Glasgow many years ago in the 19th century. His uh, works were published. So I looked for that book. I eventually got, over the years, two copies. I don't know that it's in print. I don't know anymore, but I gave one copy away. But this is 
one of the things that he says or writes about the leading features of what he refers to as the latter day or the millennial period. He just refers to it, and one of the things he does emphasize is that although he refutes much teaching, uh, particularly from the premillennialists, he will say, and areas I will not be dogmatic because he understands perfectly there are things yet to be revealed in the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises regarding Christ's kingdom. But this is what, these are the seven marks that he says, and I'm going to leave them with you. Seven marks of this period of the kingdom of Christ, and his view is that the millennium or the thousand years covers the kingdom of Christ, but the church in the latter days will be blessed, but it will not be changed. The gospel will be the same. The doctrine will be the same. The order in the church will be the same. The way it's governed will remain. All these things will remain, but... God will give a greater blessing upon them. But these are the marks. First, it will be characterized by the universal diffusion of revealed truth. Second, it will be marked by the universal reception of the true religion and unlimited subjection to the scripture of Christ the scepter, I should say, of Christ. Third, it shall be a time of universal peace. Fourth, it will be distinguished by much spiritual power and glory. Fifth, in the inbringing of all Israel will signalize that day. Sixth, the ascendancy of truth and righteousness in human affairs will distinguish that day. And seventh, it will be characterized by great temporal prosperity. Now, that's merely a summary. These were the, the, uh, as he believed, the features, the leading features of this glorious reign of Christ. And that, uh, I believe, is what we look for, what we expect, what we pray for. That is why we pray constantly for that day when the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the uh, earth as the waters cover the sea and so on. That is what I wish to say in this matter. It's been disputed for centuries And I believe that we cannot be dogmatic in certain areas because there still remains much to be fulfilled. And until it is fulfilled, we will not have entire clarity on it. But it will be fulfilled. But this brings us to this solemn event. You go back with me to the fifth chapter of (coughs) Revelation. Near the beginning of John's visions, and uh, as we've stressed, 
constantly, chapter 4, I should have said, Revelation chapter 4. John was in the Spirit, and the Lord's day was called, verse 1, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat in the throne. This is the first sight that John has in heaven. The throne, and the occupant of the throne. He says, he, a, a, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that was to look upon was like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald, and so on. And you can read the rest of the description of the throne and the occupant of the throne. Now, there's only one throne in heaven, apart from the thrones of the elders, which are different. Here we're coming to the end of this book. We've seen the unfolding of history, tremendous works and power of the devil. We see the one who has come to destroy the works of the devil, binding him and demonstrating his mighty power over him. And now we see him in the same throne. But now all the nations and all the peoples are gathered before him because there is a promise that every knee shall bow to him and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Now you think of that. We talk about making a profession of faith. We talk about confessing our faith. Everyone is going to make a public confession. And they're going to make it on this occasion. And they're going to bow to him who has been given a name which is above every name. And they're going to confess he is Lord. Everyone, the atheist, the God-deniers, the Christ-rejectors are going to have to acknowledge, yes, he is Lord. We crucified him, but he is Lord. We rejected him, but he is Lord. We despised him, but he is Lord. We denied everything the Bible says about him, but today we acknowledge before kings and princes, before poor and rich, we acknowledge he is indeed Lord. That's the day that is before us each one. Now, the works of the devil, he who has been deceiving the nations, and it is very interesting. 
We could go back. There's many passages in the book of the Revelation we could go back and make further comment upon. But we do see this great conflict clearly between heaven and earth, between the glorious Christ and the powers of darkness. And you will see a world depicted for us in the scriptures that only Christ could possibly change when he came into this world. I don't think sometimes we take sufficient note of the real state of society and the mighty power and influence that the devil had on the world into which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came. There was one people dwelling among the nations of the earth and the oracles had been committed to them. Now they are to be, according to divine appointment, the light among the nations. Now what happened when Jesus came into this uh, world? What kind of a society did he come to? John tells us he came unto his own. That's where he came. He didn't come to Babylon. He didn't come uh, to Syria. He didn't come to any of these heathen nations. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. Well, if his own will not receive him, why can that be? How can that be? If anyone is going to receive him, surely his own are going to receive him. After all, he took not in him the seed of Abraham, or the the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And in every way, he is of the seed of Abraham. And they will claim Abraham is our father. But they reject him. Now, what did Jesus have to say to those who had the keys of knowledge? What did Jesus have to say to them? What condemnation did he cast upon them? By what he said, he is teaching us how terribly, terribly, terribly dark things were. And the power that Satan had over this world before he came into it. Now Jesus wasn't speaking to the heathen. He didn't go off into one of these heathen nations and start speaking to idolaters and worshippers of heathen idols. No, no. He addressed the religious leaders of his day, those who were of the Sanhedrin, those who were the scribes, those who were the Pharisees, 
those who were the Sadducees, the religious leaders that the people looked to, to teach them, to instruct them, to enlighten them. What did Jesus say to them? Not only would they not go into the kingdom themselves, but they shut the kingdom to the people. And Jesus said of the lawyers, they had the key of knowledge, but they took it from the people. So, look at the situation. Satan has such power that he doesn't have to concentrate on the idolatrous heathen nations. He has them in his grip anyway. But now he's concentrating upon the only witness that existed at the time where the oracles are that have the word of God. The people who possess the law and the prophets. The people who have the word of God. And Satan says they won't go into the kingdom, nor will they let those who need to go into it go in. They're actually withholding the knowledge of the truth from the people. And Jesus said, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because of what you're doing. Now you think of it, if Christ had not come, what kind of a world would we be living in? If he had not come to say, I am the light of the world, where would our world be now? He came to destroy the works of the devil. That is part of the reason why he went into the temple and he took out a whip of small cords and he whipped them and he overturned their tables and he said, take these things hence, make not my house a house of merchandise. Because that's how low things were. The devil had such power, such sway, But the Savior was going to bind him with the mighty ropes, as it were, of the glorious, powerful gospel that Paul says is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And he would bind Satan and he would destroy his goods. Now, one thing that people need to remember is this. People will say, ah, well... If Satan was bound, and even if he was bound for a literal thousand years, then surely that must mean that we've got a wonderful society. The devil isn't there to stir up hatred against the Savior. He's not there to deceive the nations anymore, surely, so... There must be a mighty, mighty improvement. And what is often forgotten is this. It's not Satan that makes you or I a sinner. And it's not Satan that gives you and I our corrupt natures. We have that. 
We don't need the devil to come along and give it to us. We don't need the devil to come and make us sin because we've got something within us that will cause us to sin. And people think, well, if the devil is bound, what a wonderful society, a holy society. People aren't sinning anymore and there won't be any sin around to bother us. Unless men are converted, unless they are savingly converted, what are they going to do? They're going to act according to their fallen nature. And they don't need the devil. Yes, he could come along and he can tempt. He came to tempt the Savior. And he failed. Why? Because, as Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh, but he findeth nothing in me, because my nature is not sinful. He has nothing in me, because my nature is holy. My nature is pure and clean. I am the very express image of the Father's person. And people get the idea into their head, oh, well, this Latter-day glory for the church, this millennial age, whatever they want to call it, will be wonderful because there won't be any sin around. People get that idea into their head. As long as men are walking the face of the earth unconverted, they are going to sin. They may not be, as you and I know, every one of you here are sinners, including me. But because of the restraints of upbringing, and because of the influence of the gospel, we may not commit the sins that many another does. And many around us don't even think of things as being sin that you and I believe are. Because of the restraining influence of panas that ultimately is from God himself. And you know and I know that many are tempted by company into committing sins even against their conscience. Now the devil may have been restrained in his power, but that does not mean that men don't sin. The devil is able to tempt men. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you might stand against what? Against the wiles of the devil. But let us not think for a moment. And remember this. He is not omnipresent. God is, the devil isn't. But he goeth about as a roaring lion. He goeth about. He's on the move. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he may be, you may feel, well, he was bothering me terribly yesterday. But I think I've got a bit of relief from his temptations today. 
And then you might think, I feel more secure. I feel safer. I don't feel the onslaught of, of the devil today as I did a, a week ago or whatever. Does that mean you're safe? You're not going to sin? That you'll not fall into some snare and fall into sin? The heart, not the devil. The heart is deceitful, what? Above all things, should the prophet have written, the heart is deceitful above all things, excepting the devil. Isn't he the arch deceiver? Isn't that what he's called? Did the prophet make a mistake? Would we not say the devil is deceitful above all things? Is that not how we would speak? Is that not how we would think? But what does the prophet write? The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked, who can know it? And the devil at times can sit back and enjoy the sight of men and women sinning. He takes great delight in it, particularly if they reject Christ. But the saddest spectacle is if he sits back and gloats as God's people, as they sin. Nothing delights him more Nothing delights him better than to see the children of the kingdom sinning against their king. But here we are told of a day when everything, every last thing is going to be put right, perfectly right. The righteous judge of all the earth is going to judge you and I are heading for that judgment. The books are going to be opened. There will be revelations in that day hidden for centuries, hidden for millenniums, and they're going to be revealed. Kings are going to be there. Paupers are going to be there. Scientists will be there. Atheists will be there. People that many wouldn't rub shoulders with. They're going to be standing alongside of them. They would have ignored them, despised them. But God is no respecter of persons. And that day is going to prove it. And if we were wise, we would spend some time this day thinking about this day. Because we see the demonstrations of divine power. Casting the devil with all his power into the lake of fire. And then he will say, depart to some, depart from me, ye cursed. You were blessed with the gospel, but you're cursed for your denying of it. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels.
what company for eternity? For those who deny Christ and reject him, what a solemn event awaits us all. May we prepare for it. We shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that we are not left in ignorance, however dark the day is, that we have thy holy word to direct us, that we have that rule of faith and practice to be conformed to. And we are now presently living our lives for which we are at last to account when the books shall be opened. May we consider what may even presently be in those books. May we seriously consider the record that God has kept. And may we be found fleeing to the blood that cleanseth from all sin, fleeing to Christ as our refuge in the light of the solemnities before us. Bless thy truth, pardon our sins, receive us. For Christ's sake, amen.